we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. From the dashboard of his car, Claude LaRouche stalked the seven-year-old girl on her way to school. LaRouche parks the car in front of École Philippe Labarre. He then approaches the girl and tells her he's looking for some money he dropped on the sidewalk. It's an old trick. Guy Croteau used it when he assaulted a girl in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu. The day she disappeared in 1997, Cédrica Provencher was said to have been seen with a strange man who had lost his puppy. The girl stops walking and dutifully begins searching the sidewalk for the lost money. LaRouche takes advantage and shoves the girl into his Chevrolet Cavalier. When she puts up a struggle, LaRouche hits the girl on the head to subdue her. Shades of Ursula Scholl's here. Eventually the girl escapes. She's able to identify the man by a rosary hanging from his rearview mirror. In June 2005, 43-year-old Claude LaRouche is sentenced to 40 months in prison for that October 10th 2003 kidnapping. By 2007, Claude LaRouche is released from prison. In 2009, he will repeat virtually the same scenario, this time with fatal consequences. This is who killed Teresa.
So, picking up where we left off last time, um, today, um, July 5th, uh, 2019, is the 25th anniversary of the date when Melanie Cabet's body was found north of Montreal in Mascouche. Um, so from from the time we lasted this June 22nd till now, about 13 days, so in all that time, probably, she was um, lying, dumped under that construction debris um, in, in the woods off a, a dirt path where a, a motorcyclist had found her, I think around 1 p.m. July 5th. Uh, 1994 and um, uh, in order to get to the next part uh, so last time was all about Melanie Cabet this time has to be all about um, the offender who I feel is the prime suspect um, in her unsolved murder and that's Claude LaRouche um, and there's um uh, you know, there's there's no way of of avoiding it or or treating it with kid gloves. Uh, we got to go into who Claude LaRouche was from that first offense that we know of, the uh, um, the um, the almost uh, abduction of a young uh, seven year old girl um, to the crime for which he's currently incarcerated, the murder of Natasha. Cornoyer. And I think I've, I've, I've danced around this subject over um, the years. I think I've brought up Claude LaRouche and the Cornoyer case on a couple of occasions, but we've never really like gone, you know, right into it and talked in detail um, about what happened. But I think we need to do that in order to then get to the conclusion of, okay, so why do I think uh, Claude LaRouche is responsible for the murder of Melanie Cabet. Um, there was a time um, when I was quite uh, when, when this case broke when uh, when she disappeared uh, in the fall of two thousand and nine. Natasha Cornoyer, I was um, I was focused on this case. Um, the um, uh, the most hits my website ever got were for a post I made around about um, Colonel, uh, the Canadian serial killer, Colonel Russell Williams. Um, I never really cared too much about Russell Williams, except for the fact that I was born in Trenton, Ontario, and he served at the Air Force Base in, in uh, Trenton, Ontario. But I've never really been, you know, that into the Russell Williams case. But for whatever reason, I made a post... Um, and it got hugely popular. The second, um, probably most uh, activity that I've experienced was when I was following the um, Cornoyer Claude LaRouche case. I was really into mapping then. So in real time, as stuff was being discovered and, and disclosed in the uh, in, in the press, I was uh, sorry. I just had to squash a bug. <laughs> um, and I thought it was going to sting me. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
I I was like, as I said, as, as, as geographic facts were coming out, I was mapping them and building these maps and people were visiting that. Um, today, people can do far a better job about that um, than than I, I um, than I can today. But at the time, I, mean, I was no one else was doing it. So people were coming to me and kind of go, oh, this guy, Alor, he really knows what's going on, you know, uh, you know. Debris from the wallet was found here, and we have a sighting down there, and, and all this kind of thing. So I was really, I was really uh, in the zone with it, uh, um, f- focused on it, um, and then of course, uh, you know, I'll I'll blow the story. He's arrested, he's convicted, he's incarcerated, and that was it. And I sort of never really talked about the case um, again. And now it's it's almost been ten years, and. Uh, Part of me wants to um, respect the family of Natasha Cornwallier because it's still fresh. Uh, and so I, there's a bit of a struggle there. But part of me also wants to, um, needs to um, dus- discuss it in in reference, in relation um, to some other facts, which, as I say, um, when you, you know, when you boil it all together and when it all comes together, uh, it makes for um, a quite a uh, compelling case for the um, the beliefs that I will um, I will now uh, uh, share with you. Um, continuing on uh, this uh, thread of who killed Melanie Cabet. <laughs> When he was arrested on November 6th, 2009, for the first-degree murder of 37-year-old Natasha Cornoyer, Claude LaRouche's neighbors described him as a nice family guy. LaRouche worked as a carpenter. He was short and stocky by 2009. The 47-year-old LaRouche was balding. He was living with a woman in an Ahuntsic duplex, Caroline Bastien and her two teenage boys. LaRouche had a criminal record that extended across the province and all the way back to 1984, including uh, Rapigny, Jean-Pierre, Saint-Estache, Chicoudemy, Trois-Rivières, Joliette, and Montreal. He was due in court in February 2010 for theft charges extending from an arrest in Quebec City. Caroline Bastien was living with LaRouche at the time of the kidnapping of that seven-year-old girl. And in the five years since that trial the details of that case changed. The girl was walking toward a friend's house, not school. It was 7 a.m. She helped him search for the money, and he shoved her into the front seat of his car. But the girl fled to a nearby house. LaRouche chased her, but stopped and fled when the resident opened the front door. LaRouche was caught, not from the rosary identification, 
but because the occupant of the home was able to ID his license plate. Natasha Cornwaye worked for the Correctional Services of Canada. She was last seen alive the evening of October 1st, 2009, when she left uh, the office in Laval and she headed to the staff parking lot uh, around 8 p.m. She was reported missing the following day around 5 p.m., when police arrived at the corrections office, they found Cornoyer's boyfriend, Michel Trottier, in a panic in the employee parking lot. Cornoyer's gray Mazda 3 was still there. A crime scene technician noticed odd marks and streaks on the vehicle, suggesting signs of a struggle. Police found discarded articles of women's clothing in the nearby bushes. Constable Celine Cecile, the first to arrive at the scene, was convinced they'd find Cornoyer's body in the trunk of her car. All they found were a pair of inline skates. Investigators begin to focus on the surveillance videos from the corrections facility. Around 6.30 p.m. uh, on the night of her disappearance, a van pulls into the parking lot and parks in the rear adjacent to where Cornoyer's Mazda was parked. Around 8 p.m., Natasha Cornoyer, she's observed leaving the Place Laval facility. She crosses the empty parking lot disappearing into the abyss and darkness. Shortly thereafter, the headlights of the van suddenly turn on. The van later moves to another spot in the parking lot. Technicians recover Cornoyer's identification and credit cards along the embankment of northbound Highway 19, leading out of Laval, Detectives seize the registers of two motels overlooking the Laval parking lot, the Motel Lido and the Motel Ideal. Police later discover the name and driver's license number of Claude LaRouche in the register of the Motel Lido. LaRouche also wrote down the make and model of his vehicle a Ford Windstar van. Police put a trace on Cornoyer's cell phone. They discover it, it had been receiving calls and texts at the Motel Lido on October 1st, 2009. On October 6th, the body of Natasha Cornoyer is found in a field next to a dirt road in the Montreal East End neighborhood of Pointe-aux-Trembles. The dirt road leads to a boat launch on the shore of the St. Lawrence River. In a 
brush-covered area near the intersection of Notre Dame Street East and 36th Avenue. A local resident commented that the road was often used by drug dealers and that stolen cars were often abandoned there. The resident commented, It's like hell, a real garbage dump. I'm not surprised at all that a dead body was found there. Later, the pathologist who performed the autopsy on Natasha Cornoyer's body, André Borneau, determined that she died of strangulation and that a series of marks on her neck uh, were signs that she struggled and tried to pull the killer's hands off her neck before she died. She also suffered eight or nine impacts to her head made by a blunt object or surface. The pathologist finds evidence that Cornoyer's wrists and ankles had been bound and that linear marks stretching from both ends of her mouth were signs that she had been gagged. October 16th, ten days after Cornoyer's body is discovered, police bring Claude LaRouche in for questioning. He denied any involvement in Cornoyer's disappearance and death. At a second meeting at LaRouche's home at 1490 Prier Street East in Ahansik, he tells police he didn't know Cornoyer except for what he read in the newspapers. He tells police that he often used the Motel Lido as well as one other in Laval because he found them affordable, but he couldn't recall if he stayed at the Lido on October 1st. By now, police already know that blood found in the Lido motel room and in LaRouche's Windstar van match Cornoyer's DNA. On November 6, 2009, Claude LaRouche is arrested and charged for the first-degree murder of Natasha Cornoyer. At his trial in the spring of 2011, LaRouche admits to the killing, but claims it was an accident. In LaRouche's version of the events, he was waiting for a drug dealer in the corrections facility parking lot on October 1st, 2009, when suddenly Cornoyer appeared and ended up in his van. She hit me and got in the van. I don't know why. Maybe she fell. 50% I put her in and 50% she got in herself. LaRouche continued, claiming Cornoyer agreed to go with him to the Motel Lido. Once there, LaRouche claimed she showed him her breasts, removed her pants, and said that she would give him a blowjob, but she could leave right afterwards. LaRouche had consumed large amounts of crack and cocaine and continued to do so in the motel room which he rented for $45 for the night. After the blowjob, LaRouche claimed that Cornoyer threw her shoe at him. A struggle ensued, and they both found themselves on the floor. 
LaRouche continued to the jury. I had both hands around her neck. LaRouche then claimed he cleaned up the blood, cleaned up the room, put Cornoyer's body in his van, and drove back to his home in Hahansik. The next morning, when LaRouche opened the van door and saw Cornoyer's body sprawled out in the back of the van, covered with the motel bedspread, he claimed he was surprised. Tabarnak, she didn't leave! LaRouche then drove down to the boat launch located in Pointe-aux-Trembles, dumped the body, and disposed of the bedspread. Returning to a Hunsik, he cut up all of Cornoyer's credit cards and threw them out his van window as he drove. Now, in an already bizarre tale, this, this next part is truly surreal. LaRouche told the jury he returned to the dump site the next day to cover Cornoyer's body with a blanket because he was afraid she would freeze. He returned two days later on October 4th to remove the blanket. At the beginning of the day's testimony, LaRouche's lawyer, Richard Rougeau, told the jury that his client never meant to harm or kill Natasha Cornoyer. Now, uh, I've heard this kind of thing before, and, um, and, and sometimes where prosecutors don't want that admitted into evidence because it paints the offender in a sympathetic light, which I don't understand. Um, I think that kind of behavior, whether it's true or not, shows the complete arena of Claude LaRouche's insanity. I don't think there's anything sympathetic about that behavior whatsoever. As the trial continued, the prosecution offered a very different version of events. Claude LaRouche was on the hunt the night of October 1st, 2009. But the hunting ground wasn't the parking lot of Corrections Canada, but instead a bike path that ran adjacent to the rear of the lot. A man walking a dog testified that he observed a man who was stalking a female jogger approximately one hour before Cornoyer exited her office. The man quickly disappeared when he spotted the witness with his dog, and Natasha Cornoyer became Claude LaRouche's plan B. In late June 2011, Claude LaRouche is convicted of the first-degree murder of Cornoyer. Through the course of the trial, it is revealed that LaRouche attempted to murder an escort in a Montreal motel just weeks after Cornoyer's death, and that police suspect him in the unsolved murders of three other women, one of the cases dating back to the early 1990s.
which brings us back full circle to Melanie Cabet, The Unsolved Murder in a Hunsik from 1994. Um, now, I'm going to uh, uh, play a transcript of an email I received in late November 2009, uh, just weeks after Claude LaRouche was arrested for Cornoyer's murder. Um, so I've had this email for 10 years. And, uh, you know, over the years, I, I don't know why I didn't make more of it at the time. For some reason, uh, I didn't have, I may, it's probably because I didn't have all the pieces at that time. It's only, it's only fairly recently um, that all the little elements have come into play and to make me realize how significant uh, that email was. Now, this is from a woman named Rachel uh, who contacted me. This is nearly 10 years ago. And Rachel's become a friend. Uh, she lives in the plateau region of, uh, of Montreal. We've actually met. We had um, coffee on Saint-Denis Street a couple of years ago. Um, and I, you know, I say this again, um, I get a lot of people with a lot of information and, and, uh, to be polite, not all of it is helpful. Um, <clears throat> but this was extremely helpful and, and in my opinion, credible. So I'm going to, I'm going to post the actual email I received on my uh, website, TheresaAllore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E, along with all kinds of visual components uh, from today, and including photos of um, Claude LaRouche, that will become important, including uh, um, additions to the map we started building last uh, episode, that will also become important. Um but because this is an audio program, uh, Rachel did us the service of actually um, giving a, an audio version of that email from 10 years ago. And I'm going to play that now and let Rachel, in her own voice, explain why she contacted me right after the um, arrest of Claude LaRouche in November 2009. Okay, this is a strange story, uh, complicated, uh, mixed with weird synchronicities. Um, never felt really comfortable talking about it, and especially not to the police. So when I was 19 years old, I lived with my parents in Hunsik. Our house was right uh, in front of a park, uh, Le Parc Hunsik. On June 24th, 1994, I came back from my brother's place after celebrating La Saint-Jean-Baptiste. Uh, it was late, and my parents were out of town. And as I was walking up the stairs, I saw a strange man in the park entrance uh, behind some bushes. And I noticed that he was barefoot and uh, wearing something that looked like a diaper. So um, I noticed also that uh, he had uh, his hair shaved uh, in a brush cut. So I thought maybe this was a student initiation. 
But I quickly realized he was alone and uh, didn't look like a student. So as I was trying to comprehend what I was seeing, uh, he started undoing what he was wearing while, while uh, staring at me. So I quickly opened the door, ran upstairs, checked through the window to see if, if he was still there, and uh, he was gone. So that freaked me out, and I remember that night I, s I slept with a knife under my pillow. The next day, my brother called uh, to, check up to check up on me, and he was a little panicked because he, uh, he just heard that uh, his friend's brother's girlfriend um, was missing. She went to her boyfriend's uh, house on Tuesday, June 22nd, and uh, never came home. So, uh, and they lived like a block away from where I lived. So <coughs> the girlfriend was Melanie Cabé. Um, I think it was the day after um, there were posters of Melanie uh, put up everywhere in the city. And they described her as having long, dark hair uh, down to her waist. And a neighbor of mine uh, said that the night of her disappearance, she saw a young girl with long black hair sitting on a park bench at the same uh, park entrance, and I hadn't told her about what I had seen. So this pushed me to go tell the police. And I went, and they weren't very interested in my story. They um, made me look at some mugshots of some sex offenders, but their software wasn't working properly, so they sent me home. Um, two weeks later, Melanie's body was found in Mascouche. A woman went to the police to report that she'd been uh, attacked in the same area where her body was found. Um, she was hired as a sex worker, and um, her client uh, brutally attacked her uh, to the point where uh, she thought that he was go going to kill her. So she made a sketch of him, and they published it in the papers. He was a stocky man with a large face and neck, and the eyes, uh, the way they were drawn, made me think of the guy I had seen except that he had, uh, on the sketch, he had long hair and a mustache. So I whited it out with some liquid paper, and I thought this could definitely be him. Eventually, about a month later, La Sûreté du Québec came to the neighborhood door to door to ask for information about Melanie's disappearance. I told them what I had seen. They left with my copy of the sketch with the whited out hair and mustache. And that was it. So fast forward uh, four years later, um, with a computer software I received as a gift, I, I made a composite picture of the man I had seen that night, and I kept it in my files. So many years later, when uh, Natasha Cournoyer was killed and that they caught Claude Laroche in her murder, um, when I saw his picture, it rang a bell. I compared it with my composite, and the resemblance uh, is striking. La Roche lived in Hansik and was known to visit sex workers, and like Natasha Cournoyer, Mélanie Cabé was hit on the head and strangled. So I didn't really know what to do, so I called uh, Mélanie's mother. Um, I hadn't spoken to her in 10 years, and um, I left her a message, and she never called me back. So I didn't want to insist, considering all the pain she'd been through. So I contacted uh, John and asked him for his advice on what I should do. Uh, 
I really didn't want to call the police because, um, well, they have this um, tendency to refuse to make links. And my story was so weird that I thought for sure that uh, they wouldn't be interested in it. But um, I thought they should know that there might be a possible link between Claude Larouche and Melanie Cabet's murder. I did finally contact them and uh, sent them uh, my uh, composite picture and, um, well, told them that maybe there could be a link between uh, La Roche and Melanie Cabet and um, never heard from them again. Okay. Uh, there's a lot to digest here. Um not the least of which is um, in our old friend, the lethargy of the Quebec police, but also <laughs> the guy in the diaper. Um, I, but let's kind of go through these things systematically um, before we do, because um, it's complicated, right? We're, we're, we got a guy named Claude LaRouche who murdered a woman um, in, uh, in 2009, right? And we have his photo and we also have the composite that Rachel made of diaper man. <laughs> uh, and then we have another composite, which was done. Uh, it's a police sketch at the time of Cabet's murder of a sexual assault that happened on a prostitute as Rachel references, uh, in the same area where Cabet was found. Um, and uh, it, it, there's there's some couple of curious similarities going on here. Uh, the number of times that uh, um, referenced either victims or LaRouche himself incapacitating victims by hitting them on the head. We have that with the seven-year-old girl. We know Cabet was hit on the head. Uh, we know that uh, Natasha Conway was hit on the head. And then the issue of um, the um, the long history of um, LaRouche soliciting prostitutes um, and prostitutes coming up in this story, or at least the locations where prostitutes are known to inhabit coming up in this story. But I think the first matter that really should be addressed um uh, is um, LaRouche's location in the summer of 1994. So where was LaRouche? Um, because um, uh, if he was incapacitated or if, uh, you know, he was in prison or if he was in, uh, you know, Western Canada or something like that, he's not our guy. He's not Cabet's murderer and he's not diaper guy. Um so recall, in April of 1993, he's convicted of a sexually assaulting a 19-year-old woman that he knew. Excuse me, that's new information. Just trust me here. So it's one of his earliest offenses. And um, he's sentenced to a one-year prison term uh, and two years of um, probation. So if you run the clock, given the time served, is it conceivable that LaRouche was released into the community um, and he was serving probation in May of 1994. 
that would be one year served and just one month prior to the Melanie Cabet disappearance. Is, is that possible? Um, now, the, the second thing we should look at that involves uh, geography. Uh, I said it many times here, referencing, uh, as we went through today, that he lived in Ahansik. Um, so we already know that he lived there at the time of Cornwallis, uh murder, 2009, because we said it. He lived at 1490 Prior Street East. And that location is about nine blocks from the north face of Ahansik Park. Uh, so that's the same park where Cabay would have walked along the park side on her way to the bus stop in 94, where a woman said she saw her sitting on a bench that night in 94, the June 22nd. Um, but still, that's a lot. And, and of course, it's it, Ahansik Park is where Rachel lived as well. Uh, but nine blocks is, is, is quite a distance. Um, and that's even a longer distance in years, yeah? Uh, it's 15 years between the Cabay event in 1994 um, and his arrest in 2009. So that's a little harder to digest. But, but wait... Claude LaRouche lived in a lot of places in the decades leading up to the 2009 arrest. He lived in Saint-Eustache, Jonquière, Repegdigny, um, which is just adjacent to Mascouche, where Cabet was found. And he even lived at a second address in Ahansik. In 2000, Claude LaRouche was living at 104 Five eight, Rue uh, Pelican, 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 and th- this this is much much closer than the two thousand and nine Ahansik uh, address. This address is one block from Ahansik Park, uh, and it's two blocks from Rachel's stalking event at uh, the, the home she lived at on Rue Fleury. Um, the stalking event uh, is exactly one block from where Cabet borrowed that gray sweater from the former boyfriend, uh, Fleury and Basile Rothier. Um, so, so in the stalking event, was this Claude LaRouche? Um are, are 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 the events between Cabet and Rachel are they connected? Are they some kind of double event, where um, for for whatever reason, Larouche um, so Larouche is goes out on the hunt in Tuesday, June twenty second. He murders Cabet, but for reasons we don't know, he does not get the gratification he expected from the. Cabay murder, and then he's right out on the hunt again two nights later on the uh, Saint-Jean-Baptiste uh, holiday weekend uh, on that Thursday or Friday, uh, June 24th, 25th, depending on how you calculate in Rachel's um, coming home uh, that, that, that evening. There are 
there are problems with this theory, um, uh, and we we should address all of them. Rachel's composite doesn't doesn't uh, does look like Larouche um, very much, uh, but um, it looks like the two thousand and nine Larouche. Uh, what did he look like fifteen years earlier in the nineteen ninety four? Did he look the same as those squinty eyes with the close cropped hair? We say he he was starting to go bald in two thousand and nine, um, and then also you know bringing back the um, the issue of the police sketch, um, uh, um, the picture drawn of the attacker um, at the Muskusha dump site. Um, that does not look like uh, Claude Larouche from the photos that we know, or or does it? Uh, it doesn't look like 2009 LaRouche, but again, uh, what did he look like in 1994? Um, some have said that if you, you know, as Rachel said, if you if you cut the hair and you shave the mustache, you get LaRouche. You get the same inset eyes, the broad jaw. You know, I'm, I'm talking visual things here, and you really need to go to the website to appreciate it. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I mean, so many questions here. Um, would LaRouche have violated his parole and committed the brazen abduction of Melanie Cabet? And then back to the, the Rachel composite. So so did LaRouche cut his hair and shave his mustache the, the, the day after killing Cabet? Is that conceivable? Maybe, you know, maybe that's exactly what he did um, to avoid detection. It's difficult to say. Some Some might... Suggest that the locations are too close, um, that you don't hunt that close to where you you live. To you know, if he's living a block away from the park, uh, to which I say I say it depends. Uh, you know, the problem always in making these sweeping generalizations based on criminal theory, then using them as a sort of uh, catch-all for all occasions, um, while ignoring at the same time. That we're we're talking about people here uh, with behaviors, and behaviors are unpredictable. Um, you, you know, if you could predict economics based on behavior, and there are those who say they can, and they make lots of money off this with books and consulting, we'd all be uh, millionaires. But we're not because behavior is unpredictable. Sometimes people do the opposite of what uh, we think they will do, and on many occasions people improvise so i would throw out uh, yeah there are murderers who hunt they don't shit where they eat man and and then i think there's others particularly in urban locations that's exactly what they do because um you can escape undetected um if you're in a, a large city with a big park with lots of apartment complexes around it that's a different that's an urban jungle man where you can uh, escape uh, detection in my in my opinion um you know one of the last things i'll do is it's, it's we got to go all the way back to the last episode now and bring melanie temperton back into it remember she disappeared without a trace in 1988 she's last registered at the Metro Motel, a block and a half from a Hunsick Park, a motel used by escorts, very similar 
to the ones frequented by uh, Claude LaRouche. Uh, so he's, he's got this long history of uh, taking escorts to cheap motels uh, and abusing them. His uh, LaRouche's psychiatrist described him as a sadist who likes uh, inflicting pain. So did then 27-year-old Claude LaRouche back in 1988, did he abduct Melanie Temperton using uh, an MO very similar to the Natasha Cornoyer murder? Did he also abduct um, Melanie Cabet six years later, pushed her in his van, and then uh, driving her to the Metro Motel? Uh, possibly that's what happened before and and a very similar scenario played out uh with Temperton and Quebec that played out with uh, Natasha Cornoyer um takes her to the motel uh does what he does before disposing of the bodies um well in the in the case of Temperton we don't know where in the case of uh uh Melanie Cabet uh, near Mascouche where he once lived LaRouche was a carpenter. Cabet's body was found beneath a pile of detritus, construction materials. Uh, and this is important. Uh, if you're a construction worker and you're working a job and the job ends and you're asked to get rid of a bunch of surplus shit, uh, so you, you dump it in the woods. You don't, you don't take it to the transfer, you know, the, 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 the city dump, the transfer station where you have to pay to get rid of it. You dump it in the woods. Um, so then later, do you return to those woods because they're familiar to you? Um, because that's where you dump shit. So you dump a body there. Um, because that's what you know because you lived there in Repegni. You, you, the last thing I'll kind of address is a diaper man uh, skirting across the park undetected um, you know, is this possible? And it's been brought up that a Hunsik Park isn't a, isn't a small park. It's small as far as I'm concerned. It, uh, you know, it's not a postage stamp park as we used to call them, but it's not Central Park either by any means. You know, it, it consists of some fields, a baseball diamond, um, a swimming pool, a hockey rink. I believe that's it. So. Could a guy in in a in a diaper, which would be bizarre, and you'd you'd notice that? Um, could he, uh, y- you know, in planning to assault uh, Rachel, uh, but he's he's seen, he's spied, and for some reason he, and, and the way Rachel has described this to me, you know, I've sort of said he he ran off, and she's like, no, he he disappeared. He was there, and I looked, and he was gone. Uh, and of course, I mean, he didn't disappear, but fleet of foot, right? There's an alleyway, and it's on the website, a, adjacent to her house that connects to the park. That, that's where he was standing. By alley, I mean a bunch of bushes. You can see it in the photo. He could easily, so he darts into the park, he crosses the park, the, the the one the most risky thing he has to do is cross Saint Hubert Street, which is a fairly busy street. But if it's in the middle of the night, who knows? But after that, 
he can navigate his way back home without detection. These homes in Quebec, you know, you got to visualize them. They all have the garage the, the in the rear of the building. So in in most cases in Montreal, there's a series of, there's a whole hidden world of alleyways in Montreal. And we dealt with this in the, in the um, De Silva case. That case had an awful lot uh, to do with navigating alleyways. Um, and that's where La, uh, LaRouche lived um, at that time, one block from Ahunsic. He could easily have darted across the street into the alley and escaped back into his apartment um, undetected. Uh, so you, you, you have to believe the Quebec police... Uh, despite um, Rachel's experience, which is everybody's experience, um, they appear indifferent. It's 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 hard to um, detect how how much they're truly listening or how much they're pretending not to listen. But you have to you you have to think that they've considered this, um, and if any of it were true, they would have acted on it. But you know, with all cases. Um, it comes down to a burden of proof. In the case of Temperton, uh, there's no body. Uh, she's never seen again. With Cabay, you you have to believe there was uh, DNA. He left DNA uh, um, all over the place in the case of uh, uh, Natasha Cornoyer, uh, Claude LaRouche. So you have to believe that they tested the DNA against LaRouche, Um unless there, for some reason there was no DNA or the DNA was destroyed or somehow um, they contaminated it. Um, so with a, in the absence of um, uh, forensics, uh, that leaves an eyewitness or LaRouche's confession, uh, you know, even with a life sentence, even with the declaration as he does uh, have of a dangerous offender, um, there, it's Canada, eh? There's always a chance of rehabilitation and release. I would highly doubt Claude LaRouche would admit to anything uh, in the affair of Melanie Cabet unless he could barter to get something for it. So though, those are just some things to ponder as we observe the 25th anniversary of the unsolved murder of Melanie Cabet. Considering uh, someone like Claude LaRouche and not a particularly pleasant experience uh, face-to-face uh, with that, um, I'm often reminded, as, as we all are, it's, it's a cliche, it's a true crime cliche, uh, whoever fights monsters, uh, everyone knows that. Um, everyone knows that that's the title of a, like a, 
I think I believe it's the profiler John Douglas. I'm not. I'm just going off the top of my head here. Uh, his book, Whoever Fights Monsters. But of course, every, people would say, well, yeah, but everybody knows that's not where it's really from. Everybody knows it's uh, the philosopher, the German philosopher Frederick Nietzsche. Uh, everybody knows that, right? It's really whoever fights monsters has to take care to ensure that they don't become a monster themselves. And when you look into the abyss, the abyss... Ow! (laughs) That fucking bug finally bit me. (laughs) Wow, right on the toe. (laughs) Uh, The abyss bites back at you. Whoever fights monsters must ensure to not become a monster themselves. And when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. Everyone knows what that is. Um, I, I'm often often wondering whether Nietzsche got it, uh, Nietzsche um, got it um, from the Bible, from the uh, first letter uh, of the Corinthians, Paul. Um, I'm not a Bible scholar, but, um, um, you know, that idea of coming face to face, you know, it's in the Bible, it's usually about face to face with God. It's, uh, more typically it's in the old Testament. So, uh, so from the Hebrew and, and often it's, uh, it's used in relation to, uh, uh, Moses confronting God. Uh, the one time I know of it, uh, from the Tyndall, uh, William Tyndall Bible that it appears most prominently is is Corinthians. It's it's in the New Testament, so from the Greek, uh, right? Um, uh, now we see in a glass, even in a dark, speaking, and then shall we see face to face? Now I know imperfectly, but then shall I know even as I am known. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, even these three, but the chief of these is love. But then I shall know even as I am known. Uh, I often think that whoever fights monsters, uh, quote, is is in reference to Corinthians. Um, and maybe that's widely known. Maybe if I could just Wikipedia it, I would uh, I would find it. But um, I often find myself mm, pondering that on occasion. This is Who Killed Teresa? And I'm your host, John Allure. Um, for these last two parts um, on the 25th anniversary of the Cabet case, uh, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the journalist Paul Cherry. A lot of um, this week's episode came from his writings uh, in in the Gazette from the time. Um, uh, and uh, he, he writes very, very well. Um, some do not, um, and they should be thankful that I don't. Um, read directly from them. I didn't read directly, but I, I, Paul was very helpful in stitching this together. I'd also, um, I would like to thank, um, there's a 
researcher extraordinaire from Quebec that I ally with named Annie. And she's really the one responsible for discovering that uh, Claude LaRouche in, uh, did we say 2000? 2000 lived um, one block away in Hunsick Park. That was her work, not not mine. So some acknowledgments there. Again, I will post everything online, including the the map of which we speak. Um, I'll also post, there's a pretty good on Daily Motion uh, documentary on the whole Cornoyer-LaRouche affair. Uh, it's in French, but I just walked you through the case, so you can you can watch it. Um, it um, it's a police affair, of course, so the the point of view is the success of the police, as it should be. Uh, but but how they how they put the whole case together is really really interesting, and you get to hear from the detectives. They use a lot of the um, um, surveillance footage in it, which is chilling. So I'll also uh, post. Uh, post that on the website. You can follow us on uh, on um, what's it called? Twitter. There's a Facebook page. Um, Twitter's at, at Teresa Allure. Facebook is just Who Killed Teresa the Podcast. Instagram, although I don't know what the Instagram handle is. I forget. It might be my name, John Allure. It might be something else. Um... And they, as always, check out the website, uh, TheresaLore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. Um, all right, I don't want to run over an hour. Um, so that's it for this uh, week. This has been Who Killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Allure. <clears throat> <laughs> and have yourselves a great, great day. Thanks.
With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.